You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, museum's historian and curator. Every week we explore some aspect of one of the most fascinating subjects of all, intelligence and espionage. Please consider leaving us a five-star review, which helps other listeners find us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next on SpyCast. But then we said go in and look at how many apps have a microphone attached to it and the microphone is on. And it, it's that kind of a, uh-oh, wait a minute, you mean there are people listening to me on my phone? And the answer is yes, it's a technology that's listening to you. Bill Britton is this week's guest, the director of the California Cybersecurity Institute and the chief information officer of Cal Poly. He was formerly an intelligence officer, an electronic warfare officer in the U.S. Air Force, but we sat down in our brand spanking new studio to talk about what he has been immersed in since he left the military. Cybersecurity, information security, and space. When you put those two words together, California and cyber, on the surface, it seems like they fit snugly together like strawberries and cream or tequila and lime. But, as Bill explains, there's a massive shortage of qualified workers in the state and nationally. In this episode, Bill and I discuss his take on cyber as someone who has been around since its inception, how to address the skill shortage and worker shortage, digital literacy and what cybersecurity is now that it's more important than ever, and how Cal Poly is addressing cybersecurity and InfoSec. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, well, thanks ever so much for joining me this morning, Bill. Yeah, thanks for being here. Absolutely, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this and looking forward to having uh, quite a good conversation about some of the cool things we've done and are doing at the university. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I want to chat to you and and for many other reasons because of your, your career in cyber. So I think a good place to start off, can you just tell us a little bit more about the California Cybersecurity Institute? It sounds really cool. Yeah. So 
about eight years ago, Cal Poly University decided that they wanted to create a, a cyber center of excellence. And to form it, what they were trying to do is to bring in outside support that could help them stand it up and get it ready. At the time, it's really interesting. I was working in DC for a company that did cybersecurity, information technology, all those sorts of things. And we were purchased by another company. The owner, the CEO of that company is a Cal Poly grad. So Cal Poly asked him for a donation and they gave, he gave them me, <laughs> right? And so I came out to the university, interviewed for the job. Of course, I got it because I was a freebie to them. But the idea was to stand up a cyber center for the university. One of the things that I noticed about the university was this magnitude of opportunity. You know, it's a, it's a true polytechnic. We've got ag, we've got business, we've got liberal arts, we've got the engineering. In that engineering, we have civil engineering, we've got, you know, building engineering, architecture engineering, and we've got, of course, computer engineering. So we thought and looked at that and said, wow, you know, how do, how do we make this thing go across all these different academic arenas and so we started down the same similar path that a lot of different centers really work on, which is to try to get to the federal government and get them to help you with the cyber institutes and the cyber centers and really build on that. What I found was really interesting was is that Cal Poly is 3,000 miles away from D.C. And, and for every hour you go away from D.C., the interest level dissipates significantly in providing funds and support. And so I started looking at it going, wow, we're in line behind all these other schools. I mean, if you go to the Maryland's and the Virginia Tech's and such, they're very tied into the federal budget for what's going on in cybersecurity. So, so what we did is we said, you know, I actually read a report that said, you know, California is like the fifth largest economy in the, in the world. I said, why are we looking at the federal government? I mean, we're the fifth largest. So why not look internal of California? And so we, we started talking around different agencies and organizations and came up with the idea of this, making the cyber center now a cyber institute and working with state agencies in the state of California to provide assistance in training and simulation and other opportunities that they historically have to get on an airplane and go east to get. So the idea was to build something in the backyard of California for Californians. And so we connected strongly with the National Guard of California, the Attorney General's Office, CHP. CHP in California is the emergency responder for cyber incidents. And, and so it's all these traditional agencies in California that nobody thinks about as being cyber-oriented. And so we really started this conglomeration of working with them and the Institute, and it's been growing ever since. It's just an interesting story. And it sounds to me like there's a, a soft spot in your heart for California. Yeah, is that I don't correct? Know. Are I, you a Californian? Yeah, um, no, I'm. I'm actually from Virginia originally. Uh, I've I've been in California five times, four with the military, uh, and this time with the university. Uh, my wife, however, was born in LA and moved to Seattle, so. I think we have a 50% on that for being Californians, <laughs> uh, which, which, you know, that gives us some credit. But um, now that we're there, it's it's just an amazing experience. There's all sorts of things going on in California that are, uh, you know, high tech. We're two and a half hours out of Silicon Valley. The connectivity, the closeness to us is just so enriching for the students and the opportunity to see what's really going on in the forefront of things. It's just awesome. Um, I'll probably stay there until the day I retire, but I've tried to retire three times and haven't gotten it right yet. So <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. And do you have uh, links with Silicon Valley? Oh, absolutely. The, the best links we have with Silicon Valley are our students. 
absolutely amazing the number of students who have graduated from Cal Poly and, and moved to Silicon Valley and go work there. And over time, you know, they become captains of industry. They're really in new positions. And we're doing some other interesting things to develop our community around Cal Poly. Um, some things with a spaceport and Paso Robles and other things that are just really kind of cutting edge technology-wise, trying to draw people back into the region. And just very briefly, just set the scene for our listeners in terms of locale, because yeah. uh, I've driven down that way and it's gorgeous. It's yeah. halfway between LA and San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I believe that it's the location of the world's first motel, and it's partly because it's halfway between Los Angeles and, yeah, and that, San Francisco. That's right, that's right. So so if you take a, the map of California, right, and it's on two pages and you fold it in half, right where you put the staple is where San Luis Obispo is. It's right in the middle of the state, three and a half hours north of LA, three and a half hours south of San Francisco, and we're right on the coast. So you've heard of Pismo Beach. Bugs Bunny makes the wrong turn and ends up in Pismo. The students have everything from hiking to mountain, bike riding, lakes, uh, ocean, surfing, Volleyball, beach volleyball is very big at the university. So it's an, and it's an amazing opportunity for students to just. And, re- and there's 400 safety. wineries in the neighborhood. Yeah, as I've heard is that. Is there any um, faculty vacancies? It, or? Um, yeah, there's, yeah. there's <laughs> certainly is, certainly is faculty vacancies. Um, but if you get into the wine, you don't want to teach anymore. It's just, it's all you want to do is lay around and drink. And it must be like, what, 300 days plus of sunshine yeah, per year it, there or it, something? Yeah, it's uh, 285, 286 of sunshine. It's absolutely wow. amazing. Wow. So just tell us a little bit more about. California and cyber. So some people will probably think, surely California is cyber central. We've got Silicon Valley, all of these companies that come out of California. So it sounds to me like part of your role is to try to coordinate and and push some of these skill sets together and and build out capacity and, and increase the cyber skills in the state. Yeah. Is that is that yeah, right absolutely. Of the mark? Or? Um, what's really interesting about that is, yes, it, it is the home of a lot of those startups. And, and the first thing they do is they go and they get federal contracts. And then they say, if we're going to have this federal contract, we need to be near whomever we're dealing with. So most of them end up moving or putting an office in D.C., moving to where the food is, as Sam Kinison used to say. It, it really is this draw back to the national capital region, which is where, of course, you have your NSAs, your CIAs, your DIA, you know, all the intelligence agencies that are looking at that cyber is really here. Now, conversely, on the commercial side, commercial cyber has this this kind of philosophy of um, seen but not heard. They they don't want you to think about the cyber. They want it to be built into your app or built into your software or built in so that you don't need to have a cyber person do it. And that's kind of the way that the industry in California has really built out, which is we, we built cyber into the portfolio. That kind of makes a really interesting um, conversation when you say, okay, who's doing cyber for this and that? And so we have a, uh, as a state, we have a critical shortage of cyber professionals because they either go into a specific area for commercial or for the government. If they go to the government, they're usually moving out of the state. Uh, If they're going into the commercial side, uh, we just can't keep up the pace. Uh, It makes much more sense the hopping, job hopping is huge in California. And the demand, the number of students we're putting out, they're qualified to do it. It's really interesting. Um, when, when I ran that kind of business in D.C., we always wanted somebody with at least eight years of experience, having worked with numerous customers before, 
And so there's kind of a gap between the the new start person getting out there and then where everybody is hiring at. And so this gap is something we're trying to really address in workforce development, which is how do you validate and prove that these individuals have better skills, that they can move into those other jobs. And so workforce development, what we've seen and what we've convinced a lot of others is it needs to start in middle school, particularly around the cyber skill set, so that those students are motivated to go into that. Because by the time they get to college and they're thinking about cyber, it's kind of a too late scenario for them to really get engaged. And as part of the research for this interview, uh, I've read various reports and some of them said it's like 465,000 yeah. cyber vacancies. Yes. Other ones have said 650,000. Let's not quib- quibble about the figure. Yeah. Let's just say it. it's, it's a, a lot. lot. <laughs> right. yeah. Let's just say it's Excellent. a lot. So why is that, the skills gap? How did that come about? Yeah, so it, it's really interesting because um, I've been in this a long, long time. And what I've seen is that cyber was extremely slow to ramp up. Um, and still is to have those kind of numbers. I mean, those those are massive numbers of shortages. So, so part of um, the problem lies in multiple different areas. One of the problems is the employers themselves don't really understand what cyber is, and so they say, "Well, I need one." Well, what do you need? I don't know, but I need one. You know, and so there there is that factor. So that's hard to hire against when you don't know what you're really looking for. The second one that we've seen is is that in the specific areas like the federal government and others, they know exactly what they're looking for, and and they have an exacting person. And that government employer and eight others want the same person. And so the competition for that same person grows exponentially. And so you have, uh, I refer to it as job hopping. You have individuals who will go start with one government agency. A year later, they're moving to another one and getting a 10 to 25% pay increase and then moving and moving and moving. So it it creates this really crazy um, employment uh, networking that goes on. The third thing is, is that, uh, again, what we don't see um, so so I, I like to start off this way. So um, I give lectures to large groups and I say, in that large group setting, um, give me the name of one cyber white hat who I can talk to teenagers to 19-year-olds about that we can use as an example of someone to look up to, to emulate in cyber. So I'll ask you that question. Eric Escobar. Okay, stop it. That's unfair. That's unfair. He is a good example. But but honestly, the, the answer is cricket noise. It's mm. normally don't know. Sure. You know, we don't know people that do that sort of thing. They, they don't advertise, you know. And then you, you get the black hat side, you definitely hear about all the time. So that's not good, right? We don't want them to emulate that. Name movies that had hackers in it. So war games. War games. Okay. Uh, a teenager. Who's going to identify with that? And oh, by the way, they were doing bad things, right? So that was a, that was a really a bad side of the fence. Let me give you a couple others. Another one that I like to refer to is the movie Black Hat itself. Mm-hmm. Do you remember who played the hacker in that? I can't remember. Thor, the guy that oh, plays Thor. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so how many Six hackers? The bingo. Exactly. <laughs> how many hackers do you know? So, so here are these, you know, middle school, high school children looking at that movie, going, "Oh, I'm not going to be him." That's not me. He might be, I might be Thor one day, but I'm not going to, you know, that's not the real thing. The other one is Swordfish, which is Hugh Jackman. Same scenario, right? These are cut, big, tough guys that the gamer is looking at going, hmm, not me, bud. I'm not going to the gym. You know, or I'm not doing that. That's not my style. We're trying to get them to really say, well, if I can do that, I can go into cyber and I can do these things in life. 
and I can go work in that area and I can find some really good jobs. And that may include skipping college. Not that I would ever say that again out loud, but you know, it may include going direct into the business and then going to college after you get your feet underneath you. Or, but we're trying to establish a way that people think differently about what cyber really is and does for them. So you're trying to address that from your perch at uh, Cal Poly, but then you also do outreach work yes. with across the state? Yeah, so the idea is, um, so that we run a cyber competition, we call it the Space Grand Challenge. The, what we've done is we've combined space, spacecraft, moon, the whole nine yards with cybersecurity because space is cool. Nobody doesn't think space is cool. So what we're trying to say is, you know that cool thing you like? There's a way to be involved and be in cyber simultaneously. And it's, it's a gap. It's a major gap in spacecraft design and everything else for cyber. And so by combining these two things into an esport, a gamified cyber activity uh, in a virtual capability, we really are having our students, the Cal Poly students, they build this game in the competition. And it's really cool because they work with tech, they work with Eric as part of our technical advisory staff, where they are helping to design real-world capabilities that could occur. And they also help us from actually doing real world accidentally things that shouldn't have happened. So, so they kind of help us confine the game, make it realistic. And then we offer that game to middle schoolers and high schools to participate in. And we can do that. We do that nationally. The idea then is to get them in that mode of thinking, wow, this is fun. This is exciting. And I can do these things. Now, what's nice is the game itself is actually tied to standards of learning associated with cyber education. On the topic of space, I was just thinking a few years back, I went to the Space Center in Houston and you see all of the, the NASA stuff, the yeah. space technology, the rockets. And one thing that's quite striking, understandably, because of when it was, a lot of it looks very, quote unquote, back in the day. Yeah. A lot of it. So has the, has the space industry, have NASA, have they kept up with the times? Are they all using cutting edge cyber technology or is it still a little bit analog, a little bit back in the day? It's getting there. Okay. (laughs) Um, It is not there. So if you think about this, some of the platforms that are being used today were launched four, five, six years ago with no cyber design on them at all, right? So, So there are lots of gaps in the architectures. Many of the current commercial platforms, uh, interviewed a couple, we won't use names so they won't shoot me, asked them what their security architecture was. Um, Their answer was, well, we use proprietary solution. Uh, Proprietary does not equal secure. It just means nobody knows what it is. And if they think that's going to prevent somebody from figuring it out, wrong right? And uh, another one, I talked to a startup company and I said, um, you're, you know, do you have a chief information security officer working on your platform? And they go, no, but we're looking at hiring one. Oh, who do you, what are you looking for? What are your skill sets you're looking for? Because I know some people in the business. Well, we're looking for somebody just really to, to protect the internet. And that should send shutters up your spine. This is basically the defensive architecture of systems isn't at the maturity level. And so part of the question is, well, who should designate that? Because FAA owns commercial spacecraft. Um, Is FAA big into cyber? No. And if you look, they just published a big RFI for cyber enhancement for space 
for um, FAA airports and such. And so they're in that major push now. So the spaceport side, the spacecraft side, is still kind of behind the power curve on that. Um, who enforces? The other part that they're asking the question is, if I'm a startup, where do I get cyber parts from? You know, many of the parts for small sats are bought online from anywhere. And so who's doing the validation on those? And would that work? Could they even afford to have the components on it? That's been an argument I've heard is that the, the new start, the R&D small sats, they can't afford to have security on it. Uh, now, that technology is, is changing rapidly that there is the ability to do those things. The key becomes if they don't have somebody on their team that's an engineer that has a security background, who builds it? So, so again, what we see is the demand for cyber knowledgeable or cyber cognizant engineers is growing exponentially because it's now a system of systems in space. You know, we, we've talked to a couple of companies that are building um, plane to plane space internet, right? Well, who's protecting that? How are you protecting that? And again, intellectual property isn't the answer. So if it's a system of systems, you have to have engineers who understand cyber across the board. And so again, we see a greater need for engineers with cyber understanding, not so many specific cybersecurity specialists, but you've got to design those systems from the get-go with that secure architecture included. Mm -hmm. I've heard you describe elsewhere. I thought it was quite an effective way to do it. Um, you speak about a house. Okay, a yeah. house. Imagine a house. Yeah. You have keys. You'd lock your doors. You yeah, don't yeah. set up your alarm system and so forth. You'd close your windows when yeah. you go on vacation. So I just wondered if you could try to break it down for the people that are not into cyber and that don't know much about it. So just briefly, one of the things that I love about our podcast is that there'll be people that are sat working cyber at NSA, but there'll also be just the average person on the right. street that loves a good spy story. So for the people that are like, oh God, I hope that they're going to give me some something more that I can hang my hat on here. Just help them understand it at the most fundamental level. Yeah, so we, we I call it my Cyber 101 speech, uh, which is really a talking about the basics of cybersecurity. We, we start the conversation, first of all, with this thing called digital literacy, right? And so it's really about understanding that the world we work in has changed so much on a digital scale, right? And, and that means things like this phone. You know, um, I was talking earlier about uh, we do an educational class where we have the people hold up their phone and do all sorts of weird things with it just to see how amenable they are to following directions with the phone. And they do everything we say. It's hilarious. But then we say, go in and look at how many apps have a microphone attached to it and the microphone is on. And it, it's that kind of a, uh-oh, wait a minute. You mean there are people listening to me on my phone? And the answer is yes. It's a technology that's listening to you. So we start with the digital awareness, which is you as a human are no longer an individual located in the middle of nowhere. You're no longer that needle in a haystack, right? Because even if you are, the second thing we talk about is cloud and cloud computing. Because now that you have all this information being gathered and collected, uh, it used to be, well, you know, they're not going to find me. I'm just one of 100 million people. Well, with cloud, so what? We can find you. I can run 18 servers until I do find you in that specific instance that you're in. So your digital awareness expands exponentially with cloud. In other words, that your data, your information, stuff about you is now in that cloud that people have access to. And when they hack a site and put it into the dark side of the world, 
that just makes it even more available. And so again, your presence, your, your digital presence now is everywhere. So all that information about you, do you want all that information out there? And that's where that third leg comes in, which is this cyber awareness, understanding that protecting that first leg, that information about you and your family, your health and all those things is part of that third element, the cyber aspect of what you do. And so I start then with the conversation around, well, you know, why is cyber important? Okay, well, um, do you have a house or an apartment? Apartment. Okay. In your apartment, do you have door locks? Sure. Right. And do you have window locks on your windows? Sure. And and do you have a balcony somebody could climb up to get in the window? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you 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 do you lock all of those or you leave it open? Lock them all. Right. Why do you lock it all? Because I don't want anyone to steal it. Exactly. You don't want anybody to steal it. So think about your computer and your digital presence in that same context. Why do you leave the door open on your phone, on these other devices? You should be locking them down. So the, the internet is great, but it's not your friend, right? Um, it's really interesting. In my era, and people still do it, they name their phones, they name their computers, they put stickers Nobody has stickers here. They put stickers all over them. They personalize it. So they are personalizing their communication to a computer. The problem with that is, is that you put all that cool information about yourself on the computer. Well, if somebody asks the computer a question, it's not like one of your friends who will say, well, I don't know if I should tell you that because Bill is a good friend of mine. I don't want to irritate him. Computer says, sure, here's all the information. Have at it. Oh, and here's some more you might want too, right? So it, it doesn't discern. It doesn't think on your behalf. So again, as a consumer protecting yourself, why do you tell it all that cool stuff? I mean, I'm guilty. I did this in the first stages, you know, of owning computers. I built Excel spreadsheets on my bank accounts where I hid everything, you know, all this sort of stuff. Right then and there, right there, open and available. And they think about it now and I go, what was I thinking, right? It's insane that I put that much information out for someone else to have access to it. So it's that kind of thought and philosophy that's really the basis of what cybersecurity is. It's being a consumer of your own data and protecting it just like you protect yourself when you go to the grocery store, when you go down a dark alley, when you get home at night and you put the locks on your doors and windows. In this interlude, I just want to share with you some really exciting news. Next week begins the first episode in a five-week Spy Chief special. It features... David Petraeus, former CIA director and four-star general. Wilson Boynett, the former head of Kenyan intelligence and the man credited with turning it around. Michael McElgun, the current head of Ireland's Garda Shikona intelligence. Vapala Balakandran, the former number two at India's research and analysis wing. And Tish Long, the first female intelligence agency director here in the United States, who served the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. This took months and months to bring together and features two scoops, officials who have never spoken out previously. I'll let you guess which two. Clue, it's not David Petraeus. If you could subscribe or share this intel with a friend, we'd be most appreciative. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Okay, from your perch at the California Cybersecurity Institute, what's your take on the state of US tech talent at the moment? Are they where you would like them to be? Or, or do you think that there's still some work that needs to be done? The problem is the same everywhere. It's just in size and magnitude. California has a massive shortage just because of the sheer volume of companies and entities that need the cyber. Everything from space to medical is huge shortage of cyber people in space. Uh, in um, medical community and others. And so, again, it's a magnitude problem. It's a numbers. Uh, but you have that same problem everywhere. Uh, you can look online and just, if you're looking for a job and you want to go look at cyber and look at the number of chief information security officers, CISOs, that, that are out there from everything like banks, hospitals, uh, architecture firms, law firms, everybody is requiring someone who's going to come in and say, I'm going to protect your internet. And that's the basic premise, what they think about is protecting my internet. But it's really all that other data. Um, how much data do you store on these things and how do you protect it? Well, if you're a company, you really want to know, do I have company data on my phone and what am I doing with it, right? Uh, and, and so those sorts of things. So we see that problem across the U.S. today. Uh, what we also have is this international threat presence that is always looking at us as well. So not only in the commercial side, but now the government side that is looking for uh, professionals in the cyber arena. And so there's a shortage there. If you really look at this, what we're creating is this need that says, maybe it's not a cyber person I need, but maybe it's an engineer who is designing cyber and understands security portfolios to be part of the solution set on what I do. Maybe it's an IT person who is really security aware that builds my architecture for the office and secures it. There's not enough people that have the right skill sets in this arena. Those that do have the skill sets are paid mightily. Um, they get a ton of money to do their job, and they're usually very, very good at it. Now, one of the things we talk about in our Cyber 101 is, is really, what are the crown jewels that you need to protect at your business, at your area that you work in, that's where you spend your money. That's where you spend your time. If you're spending it on everything, I mean, I know people who have, quote, told me their house is so, their internet at home is so secure that nobody could break through it. Why? What, what do you have on it that you need to spend all that money on that? I mean, again, you have to put this as an equation to what is my cost of effectiveness if I lose it 
what do I do if I do lose it? Does the business shut down because I lost this information? And really kind of work backwards from the understanding that what is the impact to you and your business to do these things? That simple kind of skill set is not really taught. That's one of the things we try to work on. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the Jimmy Fallon show that uh, they went out in the street and they actually got people's passwords just by interviewing them on the street. And, and they gave up their passwords. It's just, it, was, it was so simple because they don't think about that. I'm protecting, you know, I don't give you the password to my lock for my house. I don't give you the key to my house, but I'm giving you the password to my internet, which has so much more on it, mm -hmm. right? So there, there's a lot of material there that's uh, available. So, you know, California Cybersecurity Institute, yourself, you're doing the Lord's work. You're trying to address this skill shortage. Uh, you're trying to get people up to speed on this. But I'm just wondering how much of the owner should also be on, on tech, on the companies that are making this stuff? So, yeah, that's a so, great question. So, I mean, it just seems like they're, you know, yeah. if you think about, say, so you gave the example before we went on air of you went to Sacramento, uh, you gave a talk, uh, yeah. you found out that someone had 38 apps actively listening to yeah. her d daily life, basically. Yeah. You know, she, she, she 68 apps. Sorry, 68, yes, uh -huh. yeah. She, and she didn't have a clue what was going on. Right. But you get, you buy these phones and you get, right. you know, scroll down this list and then click agree at the bottom. I mean, it could say really anything. You know, people are busy. They're, they're getting on with their lives. You know, they don't necessarily yeah. have time to sit around figuring out emerging technology or disruptive technology. So how much of the owner should be on on tech? Or I'm even thinking about data breaches. You know, we had a guest on a couple of years ago and he said there, there's hardly any incentive for them to do stuff to address this because there's the, 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 there's not a lot of punishment there. Yeah. He said if you, if you charge the company a dollar per day for every person whose information has been breached until the breach is fixed... You you would you can guarantee that that problem would uh, be reduced quite significantly yeah. within a couple of years. But at the minute, it's privatized gains and collectivized losses. Yeah. The companies take the money, but when it all goes wrong, it's like, oh well, I guess you, Joe Public, didn't do cybersecurity properly, and the average person's like, what the heck? I'm just right. I'm just trying to pay the bills and make ends meet. So just uh, give us your thoughts on that, Bill. Yeah, that's um, really good question. So so uh, I want to blame the internet. We'll start there. Um, I think there's been this acceptance that the cyber, the hardening side, the protection side uh, would be taken care of somewhere, but not really identified where. The, the original intent of the internet was just push information around to do research, right? There was no security architecture really designed. There was a IP architecture so that you knew who was talking to whom and such. But really that whole emphasis on security has come well after the technology has been launched, the market has been established. And so now a lot of that technology is add-on and it doesn't work the way it should had it been designed into it. And, and so again, what we're looking at is, is kind of reshaping the way that the market space is working. Uh, we're seeing this in the development of futuristic spacecraft and other things where they're changing their delivery techniques. They're adding security as an, as an engineering factor in. Um, there's a, a type of design called security by design that's really taken effect in the cloud to where you design your security architecture as you design your application or your medium for storage so that it's in the upfront stages as opposed to the add-on at the end. 
The challenge with an add-on is, is whatever that product is doing, be it a phone or anything else, it is a main function. And by adding something on, you never really get to all of the code and all of the aspects to protect it. So I see the community is adapting, but it's slow. It's slow because we don't have all the engineering cyber individuals we need to design. So you've got the market screaming up. It's like watching a stock market. It's screaming up as the number of people eligible to help it slow down and secure is still at this steady level pace. And so these two things are not converging together. They're slowly moving towards the same level. But technology is outpacing the secure environment. Um, I once sat in a discussion between the medical community and the cyber community. And boy, was it just a really fun argument because the conversation was, I've got to get my medical product to market as soon as possible to save lives. Therefore, security can't slow me down. Well, just that thought alone is like, oh my God, did he really just say that? The answer is yes. They really are trying to go at a massive pace to deliver, to change the world that we live in. And the security side is perceived as a slowdown to that delivery cycle. So, so again, how do you expedite that? I, I read something the other day, and it was talking about uh, doctors in the United States. And there used to be a much higher percentage of doctors per American. And in the past couple of decades, it's came down quite considerably. And this, this article traced it back to a reduction in the number of residencies in the 1980s. So that's the pinch point in the system. Yeah. So there's there's enough graduates, there's enough people that want to do it, but there's not enough residencies. So the number of doctors has, has decreased over this period of time. But it sounds like one of the pinch points that you're talking about is when it comes to a company or a CEO, they're looking for someone that's quote-unquote cyber, but they don't really understand what cyber is and they don't really understand the functional differentiation within cyber in terms of competencies. It's like you want to have an Air Force and you say, well, let's get lots of pilots. And you're like, well, okay, so who's going to arm the planes? Right. Who's going to maintain right. the planes? Who's right. going to do the Precisely. electronics? Who's Okay, so we need people for that. Well, how are they going to be fed? How are they going to be moved around? Yeah. You know, so like the whole ecosystem that comes exactly. along with putting a very small percentage of planes in the sky, mm -hmm. but... People just don't know where to do the intervention. Is that, right. is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, it, it look at cyber as truly an ecosystem that, that has so many gaps and holes in it that it's hard to solute, solve the entire equation. The, the interesting part of that is that you can have a cyber person, you know, um, internet, right, firewall. You can have somebody who runs a security operations center. You can have somebody who does forensics analysis. These are all different skill sets, different people, different roles. In many places, they may be combined one or two or three. But what you find out is with size and magnitude, more data, more information, more all things, you need more people to do that. So a lot of what we're seeing now in technology is to move to AI and ML-based support structures to help with the security decisions so that many of those things are automatically flagged. The human in the loop is to ensure that there is a problem. And so that, that is going to alleviate some of the problem. But then again, we still need those people who understand how the AI works, who program the AI, who build it into the other architectures, and that, that AI and ML has to be checked. It has to be balanced. It has to be evaluated to ensure it's doing what you designed it to do and it hasn't decided to go off and do its own thing. So, so all of those now are even adding more complexity to the conversation. 
So as we add technology to make it easier, we still need more people to figure out how to run the technology. <laughs> and just help our listeners understand what that ecosystem looks like. So, you know, it's obviously very large and very complex. So I don't expect you to enumerate every single part of it because that wouldn't even be that that interesting or informative, but just a, a broad brush level. So let's just say an army, you've got infantry, people know what that is. That's, yeah. the, that's the people that right. hold the rifles. You've got armor, you've got tanks, you've got logistics, you've got all of these different parts. So there's dozens and dozens of roles within all of the, the, the whole spectrum of the army. Can you just break down for listeners what the cyber, cyber ecosystem is? I think if I could fully answer that, I would be the richest man in the world okay. <laughs> because that is part of the problem exactly okay. is, is that that ecosystem is fluid, it's flexible, it's based on who you are as a company, what you are as an entity, what kind of information, what kind of technology you use. I mean, if um, again, the amazing thing is to go look through the the, the one edge, the, the, the jobs for hire. And I saw one, Fairfax had... Um, a radiology company or office needs a information security person. Well, what would they do? Well, mostly it's protect the internet. Mostly it's protect the data associated. It's protect the transactions that occur. So, so you get into this basic protect mode. So that's a skill set that you would identify in the ecosystem, which is a protect or defend, right? Um, then there's the second, which is the forensics area. That is the person who says, uh-oh, something happened on my machine. Let's figure out how and who did this. Now, you're not going to do anything other than protect it, hand it over to law enforcement, whomever. But the idea is to figure out how to prevent it from happening again. So that's a completely different set of skill sets than the defense side, who is really kind of evaluating, monitoring, um, you know, observing what's going on in your network and looking at it. Then you've got the connectivity side, the communications. Um, so that would be like a networking type. But, but a lot of these are also IT skill sets that the network engineer needs to understand the impact of security. So you're really taking the entire ecosystem of IT, deputizing it as cyber as well, and then adding a whole other layer of policy, of review, application security. I mean, all of these things, thus it gets to look like one of those old measles charts where you've got everything <laughs> everywhere and everybody has to know something about the mm -hmm. same thing, mm -hmm. right? And the ecosystem really is... You, it's you, your company, it's who you are and how you want to protect yourself in that process. But uh, what are the stereotypical job advertisements for cyber? And yeah. maybe that would help us understand so that a the, bit more. The classic one is a, a information security officer, ISO. Okay. Um, that is kind of like the all-knowing, all-seeing cyber person mm -hmm. for a company. And they expect that person to do policy. They expect that person to do uh, protection. They expect that person to defend. They expect them to do all these other things. Normally, that person can't do all of that. And so they hire a lot of different companies from here uh, to help them figure out all these different vectors and avenues and other things. So that's really the basis, chief information security officer or information security officer. The next side of it is really all these networking and uh, engineering roles that have a security part to it. So you're transcending between your IT team and your security cyber team back and forth. So that's the kind of the third areas where they're all part of it, but they're not directly applying to it. I, I think the other one there's the most confusion about is the forensic side, the investigator of what's going on. 
So an, an investigator, a forensics person, is not the same person that would run your firewalls, right? That person is looking at what's inside your computer, how did it get something there, what was the effect on your system, and they're looking to make improvements to the process. And that's, that is just a humongous skill set, that, that knowledge base of understanding and getting in there. What you see is a lot of forensics also understands the hacking element, and a lot of former hackers become the investigator. And so, so that's it. And then there's the classical hacker. That's an outside or inside, either a white or black hat, as they call it, that is really looking at how do I attack a system or how do I protect a system after I've hacked it because I wanted to hack it first to see what the vulnerabilities were. So I think it's those four generic categories that mm-hmm. creates your ecosystem for cybersecurity. Okay, uh, thank you. That's very, very helpful. the cloud. Bill has spoken about it several times in this episode and I realise that it may conjure up the image of those dreamy renaissance paintings where angels and saints and cherubs are suspended high above the mortal earth on billowy piles of white fluffiness. In the context of this episode though we need to recalibrate. The cloud is a term that confuses, perplexes and bewilders many people but the basic idea is rather simple. Cloud computing means storing and accessing data and programs over the internet instead of on your computer's hard drive. Think about your PC or Mac at home, which is simply an electronic device that manipulates information or data. Cloud computing means you still use that device to manipulate data, but instead of the storage and programs being there on the premises with you, you access the storage and programs over the internet. Think Netflix, think Dropbox, Google Docs, and Zoom. And I just wondered how you ended up at um, the, yeah. the California Cybersecurity Institute. So I know that you've got an intelligence background, I know yeah. you've got a military background, I yeah. know that you spent some time in private industry around yeah. DCs. I'm a real oddity in this marketplace. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I did uh, 20 years in the uh, military Air Force, United States Air Force, of which I was able to do some amazing, cool things in the areas around intelligence, electronic warfare, electronic combat, cybersecurity. Um, I then retired and went to work as a Beltway Patriot or Beltway Bandit, whichever you want to call it. Um, and so I did that for quite a time and ended up running uh, an intelligence group that did IT architecture, cybersecurity. Uh, we built things that uh, we took into the field. And when they brought it back, they put it next to the Ark of the Covenant on a shelf, turned off the lights and locked the door and walked away. Um, I was running a small company or um, the intelligence side of a small company. The CEO of that company uh, was a Cal Poly graduate. And um, they said, gee, we don't know what to do with you. So um, how about you go work at Cal Poly? I had to look it up. Um, I'm an East Coaster by uh, birth. And I found out that there were two at the time and didn't even know which one to go to. So I waited for the, the airplane tickets to figure out where I was going and ended up going to the university I was there about six months at the university and the CIO retired and they said, do you know anything about IT? I went, duh. 
And um, they said, well, could you be the interim CIO for the university and run the cyber uh, institute? And I said, well, we'll give it a try. And then I figured out I don't really want to move away from here. Um, so I applied for the job as the CIO, got the job, and had been doing a lot of digital transformation, cybersecurity uh, for the university. I think it's an interesting mix of skills and background because I worked at DARPA for a while. I worked for the NRO for a while. I worked for all these different agencies. And a lot of what I'm doing today is what I learned in those areas, which is really being out of the box, uh, being transformational, being innovative, and applying it to an area that may not understand all those things in the application of the day-to-day existence. And working with the academic side, trying to build and innovate the university. Um, as uh, I have a belief that as a CIO for a polytechnic, we have to be able to teach with students utilizing the kind of equipment they're going to go use in the field when they start their jobs and work in the world. And that's an expensive proposition for a university to have to try to do. That's why we moved the university to a cloud-based infrastructure support. So we are all in on the cloud. I think one thing you said there is quite interesting. I think a lot of people have this stereotype that working for the government is just being a cog in a machine and being grey and mindlessly putting one foot in front of the other day after day and Silicon Valley's where all the outside of the box thinking takes place. But the places like DARPA and Skunk Works right. and NQTEL. Absolutely amazing. There's all these people that are really pushing the envelope, right? Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, when I got to the university, the students think that the federal government is a bazillion miles away. It's on the other end of the world, and they're really strange people and very restrictive because it's the government. And so I, I brought um, a young lady out that that was working for me at the company I was at and asked her to talk to the students. And it was wonderful because she's into yoga. She rides a ninja motorcycle. Um, she's as much Californian as the rest of us were. And she looked at all these students and they said, why would you go work for the federal government? And she said, you don't get it. I have a free get out of jail card with the government. I can do amazing things in my world of hacking on behalf of the government, with the government that you can't even think about doing or you're going to go to jail. And she said, it's that experience, that ability to think out of the box and do things amazing and protect people in the process that is really rewarding. And they were amazed. And just coming back to uh, Cal Poly, is there a difference between a CIO and a CIS or is it basically the same thing? Yeah, the significant difference. So the CIO is responsible really for the entire enterprise and architecture of the IT information technology that supports a university or a business or any of those entities. And a lot of people ask me, what is a CIO? I go, chief information officer. They go, what is that? And I go, "I, I work with computers and the internet. Oh, yeah, I get it. Well, it's working with it, but it's an orchestration. Right? I'm the conductor of the IT at the university. Everything has to work. Everything has to tie together. I'm responsible for making sure that students don't lose their homework in the cloud, that students can talk to mom and dad every night on the Wi-Fi phone, that, you know, that all this IT works no matter where you're at at the university. If you think about a polytechnic, a polytechnic is really about data. All the student data, study data, homework data, it's all data, and moving it from place A to place B. And so, again, the CIO acts as the orchestrator, the the conductor for this orchestrated effort of information flow around the university. The chief information security officer says, geez, that's a lot of data. We have to protect it. We have all these different rules. We have FERPA, HERPA, 
the ITAR and government rules and all this information technology rules, rules about the data, rules about information, rules about credit cards, all those sort of things. We have to monitor all that. We have to assess all of that. Um, we had an announcement one day about some work that we were doing with the federal government. The next day, we had a thousand direct hits on our brute, brute force hits on our university webpage direct from Russia. They, they weren't even really? trying to wow. hide it. They wanted to come in. They wanted to find information on what we were doing. It was just direct, right? And so the chief information security officer is responsible for precluding the attacks, for protecting information, really protecting the crown jewels of the university. So the CIO would have a CISO working for him? Yeah, that, that's a great argument. Um, many CISOs do not work for the CIO because they believe there's a conflict of interest. The way we work it, and with my background, the CISO does work for me, and we both work for the president of the university. Um, in some places, they work in separate areas so that they can have, uh, um, uh, they are not conflicted that the CIO would say do this and the CISO would say don't do that, and he'd still have to do it because the CIO said so. Uh, we don't have that challenge. So again, it's um, it's a different environment, and it's run differently in different companies. Some places don't even have CISOs. And that's where you see that the CIO has all these roles and responsibilities that they're supposed to hand. How many people are on your team? So uh, I have overall 185 employees for the university, and I have eight that are in the security portfolio. I think that Cal Poly or just the university is a really interesting example. It is. Because knowledge, data, right. advanced research, yeah, all absolutely. of those types of things. So it's quite an interesting problem or, or challenge to take over. Okay, there's this university, this information ecosystem that I have to take control of. So again, just on the, the topic of elaborating what these ecosystems can look like. So you arrived day one in, in this job. What, what does that look like for you? Like help us understand you sat down with your yeah, you know, sheer panic. Yeah, um, <laughs> after uh, after the sheer panic, you know, you get you get the yellow legal notepad, and I you're did. like you're making I, boxes, uh, yeah. and you're here's this, 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 and this. What but, what were the this, 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 and this? Well, you know, it's interesting. So the first thing I did was a risk analysis of the university, and I did it from not just a security risk. I did that, but I also did it from the perspective of risk for the university. How old is the computers? How old is the data center? Where is the data center? And we come we conducted this risk analysis. And of course, that's when I had my second panic attack was when that was done because the list was just massive. Um, and, and one of the things, I wish this were uh, not true, but it's true. I mean, do all this standard stuff and we kept coming back to this number one risk. Our data center was in the basement of the science building. And these are the servers that are storing all the information, important information for the university. And that rack of servers was underneath a restroom. And that restroom had overflowed before and continuously overflows so that it floods the floor and then leaks down on the servers. We lost a million and a half dollars worth of servers. And this is something that is just completely unacceptable. So, so I, I took my little risk analysis and all my little charts, you know, and I went to the risk officer and I said, hey, we got a bad problem here. And it's interesting because his response was, well, the guy before you didn't say it was a risk. Why is it a risk now? And I said, uh, I don't know, but I'm telling you, I actually said it was a level four risk. At the time, there were only three identified levels. I made up the fourth just to show them how bad it was, you know, <laughs> just to really drive home the point. And they said, well, I don't get it. So I, I took it to the cabinet, which is our C-suite equivalent for the university. 
And I said, look at this chart. You know, this is a level four. We got a problem. This is a, this is a bad situation. We can't afford to lose this information. So we created a campaign that basically in the campaign, we said, we are one flush away from losing our data at Cal Poly. <laughs> that actually worked. It resonated. It got people's attention. They said, well, oh, what do you mean? One flush away. I said, well, it floods, you know, all the stuff just was poop on the, and they said, that's unacceptable. I said, no joke. It is You're completely. You're telling me. Yeah. yeah it's unacceptable. What do, and then they go, what do we do about it? And that's where I had them. So mm. when they said, what do we do about it? That was our ability to then Smart. make the sale and say, okay, what we need to do is develop a solution that takes us out of that data center that future-proofs the university. Um, so just a couple of final questions, Bill. This has been uh, really an enlightening. So one of the things that I was thinking about was you were mentioning there, you know, you go there and it's like, well, the last guy never yeah. never thought this was a problem. This must be a problem for CIOs and CISOs all over the place. They go to the president or the CEO and it's like, oh, come on, you know, can we not get away without it? It reminds me a little bit like a former landlord where yeah. every expenditure was yep. this yep. massive imposition. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were penny pinching and can we not get away without right. doing this? I, I've talked to companies who actually said to me, I'll pay for security when I have an incident. And it's too late. I mean, by that time, you're not preventative anymore. You're just reactionary. You're, you know, malware, uh, ransomware. You're going to pay. You have no protection. And so, uh, and so it is an eye-opener, particularly if no one has been doing that role before or if that role was looked at differently. And so uh, many CIOs, not all of them, but, you know, some CIOs are in the role of I provide the enterprise. And, and, and that's it. And so I have to deal with all that. This has been a great discussion. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your expertise with me and with our listeners. It's been a pleasure. I, I hope to, we can do this again sometime in the future. Yep. Awesome. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. Coming up on next week's show. So, again, I think... The role of intelligence is what it always is, and it's crucial. The difference here is the sources of intelligence, which have evolved enormously. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Emily Renz, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan.